we needed an opportunity to hit the pause button. And where the insurance industry has really been focused on is when there's that time for all of us to pause, when it's in our common collective interest to pause for our own safety, how do we provide some type of safety net? Hello, I'm David Hilgen. Welcome to Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. The coronavirus pandemic has impacted the world in ways we've not seen since the flu pandemic of 1918. In less than two years, millions of people have died from COVID-19, including more than 700,000 Americans. Schools and workplaces have gone virtual. Global supply chains are a tangled mess. Commercial real estate, especially office space, may never be the same again. And many small businesses have shut down for good. There is no guarantee such an event might not happen again, and much sooner than 100 years from now. Our guest today on this Future of Risk podcast is Pete Caminiti, Property Technical Director for Zurich North America. Pete has spoken and written about the need for a private-public partnership to address future pandemic risk. Today, we're going to talk about the role insurance might play in this. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Pete, I've been following the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report for years. Uh, Zurich is a partner in the report. And each year, infectious diseases is among the top global risks. It should be the surprise of no one that it was the number one risk in terms of impact in 2021. How have we all ignored the warnings for so long? So I don't know if we have. I don't know if I would say we've ignored the warnings. Like you mentioned, the flu of 1918 was really the last time we saw any kind of pandemic of this scale, but it's not the last pandemic we've seen. Um, if we kind of break this down into a couple of different buckets, you know, from an insurance perspective, after SARS in the early 2000s, that was a bit of a wake-up call for the insurance industry about the potential exposure that exists. And you saw a lot of, across the industry, products really start to address the potential for communicable disease exposure uh, and really tried to address it then. So I think the insurance industry actually had their wake-up call in the early 2000s. Now, for the rest of us who haven't been around for 100 years, probably did have some difficulty anticipating that this was the far-reaching impact that a global pandemic could have. So I think for you know you and I in our daily lives or even businesses, um, like you mentioned, schools, certainly we're probably caught off guard to some extent because it just hasn't happened with this kind of frequency. We haven't seen you know, a pandemic with this kind of reach in a really long time. And things have changed so much. And that's the other thing that's, I think, important too. Our mobility, you know, the way we travel, uh, the way we interconnect is very different than it had been. So I think it was just hard to imagine what a pandemic in today's world would look like. Just like I think it's actually really hard for us to think about what a pandemic in 20 or 30 years from now might mean for us as well. You mentioned SARS was a, a bit of a wake-up call for the insurance industry. So that might explain why the industry and Zurich in particular is involved in the current discussion to develop a federal pandemic solution. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, you know, representing Zurich, this is a large problem that requires really support and ideas from all different sectors of the economy to try to figure out how to best position ourselves if and when this happens again. And so I don't think, and we don't think, that this is something that can solely land on the insurance industry. It can't solely land on businesses and in schools, and the private sector, and it can't solely land on the federal government either. I mean, really, we really need to all come together. So 
what we did is we took a step back and said, what role should we as an industry play here? You know, where are some of the strengths that we can draw from some of our experience, some of the things that we do really well, and how can we lend that towards this problem? And that's really what our interest in being involved in part of the conversation has really been all about. We see that across a number of different areas. We look at things like the insurance industry has a long history of, of innovation around risk management, right? Whether it was introduction of things like airbags and anti-lock brakes or helping to create safer workplaces. It's the type of thing that the insurance industry really does well. This is no different. We should really be leaning in and trying to figure out how to help our communities, our businesses become more resilient. So when this happens again, we're better prepared next time. And then from a financial perspective, of course, one of the things that we do is we provide great service to customers when they're in a time of need. So again, how can we think about some of the infrastructure that the insurance industry has, some of the relationships that we already have established with businesses, and how can we leverage some of that to help facilitate some type of system that may need to evolve to help address future pandemics. So with uh, COVID, we saw uh, a federal response with the Paycheck Protection uh, Program. They relied on the banking sector, and that seemed to have worked pretty well. It was uh, kind of a loan program and so we looked at that and said, well, maybe there's some way that the insurance industry could participate in something like that. And so last time around, it leveraged the banking sector. And next time around, is there some way to potentially tap into the insurance infrastructure to help support distributing funds uh, to those who need it? Interesting. Obviously, Zurich isn't the only uh, insurer or the only entity considering some sort of broader concept to deal with pandemic risk. For some of the key components of Zurich's concept, more importantly, what's the ultimate goal? Sure. I think an important thing here, you know, because this is such a challenging problem to figure out how to solve is it's really not about who has the best proposal or which proposal ends up, you know, kind of winning in the end. It's really about how do you take the best ideas, get the right people in a room together to start brainstorming around how to solve parts of this problem and take those best ideas forward. And that's really been our approach from the start. You know, we were, uh, pretty upfront with a lot of the folks that we were working with that you're not going to see a proposal coming from Zurich. Instead, what we wanted to do is interject key concepts into the discussion, really to foster problem solving. Because if you think about pandemic risk, and we think about what we've experienced over the last year and a half, it's a massive problem. So you have to think about where can you chunk up this problem into manageable pieces and then how can you think about different solutions for those different parts of the problem? So one of the things that's been really common across a lot of the concepts and proposals that are out there is the part of the problem that the insurance industry has really looked at to say, there's a place for insurance or the insurance industry to participate in. And that is really uh, what we focused on and what the industry is really focused on is that initial period of disruption, that initial period of shutdown. So COVID has caused disruption for the last year and a half. Nobody's been talking really about an insurance solution that would be able to sustain that level of disruption. But what we saw in the very early days of COVID as it being a, a novel pandemic, something that we hadn't seen before, we didn't know what our response needed to be as a society. How do we provide some type of assurance that while all of us are doing our part by pausing, somebody's gonna be there to help us through that period of time? So all of the concepts really have focused on the needs of business. And again, we're talking specifically about a, a commercial solution here. The needs of business during that period of time. They have employees who aren't coming to work. 
they have customers who aren't coming to their stores or products that aren't getting manufactured or shipped. They have overhead costs, fixed costs that they need to take care of. How do we make sure that there's some form of support that while everyone's closing their doors and sending their employees home and, and telling their customers you have to stay away for a period of time, how do we make sure their rent gets paid, their mortgage gets paid, their debts get serviced, their employees get paid? Because again, if we think about some of the common things that we all want to see happen is we don't want businesses to have to immediately start laying off people during this important period of let's assess what's going on. So all of the concepts are really focused on that. Then it just gets down into how does that mechanism work? What does that look like? Is that an insurance product? Is it not an insurance product? Is it a federal program? Is it a private program? Is it some federal private partnership? Um, that's really where we then get into the details of how do you solve for that. But the important piece is that's the part of the problem that I think the insurance industry is really well equipped to help be a part of. And then beyond that, it's working with customers on their resiliency throughout the entire process. So making sure that they're number one, best prepared. And then when something like this happens again in the future, that they have the tools and the techniques available to help them see it through. It makes sense what you're talking about, the pause. I remember the early months of this pandemic where people were talking about, boy, I hope things get back to normal in three months, and then six months, then nine months, and nobody knew what to expect. And now we're just, we still don't know what to expect. And the next pandemic may be completely different than this pandemic. It might affect us in completely different ways. So yeah, I can see that if we had a solution that it, it could address any pandemic, whether it's a, a viral pandemic that is airborne or whether it's a, the zombie apocalypse, that's been an important part of the discussions that have been ongoing as well is how do you make sure you don't have this recency bias towards this pandemic, right? Because the next one, to your point, could look very different. And so what we really wanted to focus on was this concept of something being novel, right? So you've got something new, you don't know what it is, don't know exactly what the best response would be. Um, and so you do, you need this time to hit the pause button. I mean, again, I think about the early days of COVID, like you said, I'm not a prolific shopper. So the fact that I wasn't going to the store, the economy didn't notice, but I didn't go to a store for over three months. And so how do businesses get through that period of time? They need some support. They need some immediate support. There's an element of resiliency, right? Making sure that they have the proper liquidity, that they have a game plan. There's a period of time where then businesses had to adapt right? So we have to be adaptable. So businesses that, you know, restaurants that didn't deliver found a way to start delivery business. States uh, found ways to ease up on some of their regulations, things like alcohol delivery, right? So you could now have a meal with a bottle of wine delivered to your home. Those, those are things that you couldn't do prior to uh, the pandemic. And it was all in support of trying to make sure that businesses uh, could adapt and see their way through. But we need to give them that little bit of breathing room to figure all of that out both at the government response level, as well as the individual businesses need to figure out what their plan is going to be. And that's really where we see the best opportunity for the insurance industry. Well, I do remember for a couple months, we were disinfecting our junk mail before we brought yeah. it into the house and throw it away. Yeah. But it was disinfected when we throw it away. We don't do that anymore, thank you. You talked about, you know, it's a novel coronavirus. We all know that. But, you know, this is an entirely a novel concept. Is there any precedent for what's proposed by the 
insurance industry. Like, what about the federal crop insurance program? Is there any connection there? So there's a there's a couple of things that we can look to, and uh, all of them have some things that we can draw from. And then, like a lot of things, they all have some elements that you'd probably want to leave behind, right? So if you think about where there's been some form of public-private partnerships previously and, and things that are in existence today, there, there's several things. So um, one of the things that was looked at was TRIA, the Terrorism Insurance Act. So after 9-11, terrorism insurance was difficult to come by, not available, was un- considered uninsurable. And so a backstop was necessary to allow people to kind of come back into the marketplace. So that program is one that has been discussed uh, to some extent as maybe a model for something for a pandemic. Now, terrorism and pandemic are, are very different perils, if you will. Um, so they have some very different needs. One of the key differences here is when you think about something like terrorism, it is usually geographically isolated and constrained to a certain period of time. What we see from pandemic is this is something that's global and it affects you know vast geographies all at the same time. And unfortunately, it doesn't uh, obey any rules of can only last for a certain period of time either. So they're very different perils, but it was one that was at least looked at, right? Some things that we could think about there. Federal flood insurance program is another one. That's another public-private partnership. And then, as you mentioned, the federal crop program. And and Zurich has great experience with the federal crop program as one of the, the top servicers in the federal crop program. And so we did. We took some time looking at the federal crop program and thinking about its origins and actually drawing some parallels to what we see with communicable disease and pandemic. So the federal crop program came about really because it was a period of time where there was extreme weather, um, making it very difficult for farmers to be able to take the risk that they needed to take to put crop in the ground with some kind of certainty that they were going to be able to get through that growing season. And it got to the point where it really started to threaten our national security. It was threatening our food supply. So something had to be done. And so the federal crop insurance program was born and it's it's evolved over the years, but it was modeled that as a public-private partnership between the federal government and the insurance sector to help bring that certainty, that stability back to farmers and allow them to take that risk that they needed to take, knowing that there was some protection there for them if things didn't pan out the way that they had hoped. So we looked at that and we drew some some parallels here to say, well, when we think about communicable disease and we think about pandemic, it's a similar type of threat to our to our security, right? It's a threat. It's a threat to our economy. It's something that is in the public interest. So we want to make sure that you know we think about this in a thoughtful way, and then we say, well, why is it that we look to um, the insurance industry with the federal crop program, and can we think about that for a pandemic as well? So we thought about the things like resiliency. We thought about the things like our experience with uh, claims and, and dispersing claims funds, and we thought about things like. Um, you know, distribution of product, which is very important, right? So a key principle behind this is this only works if people actually have access to the protection that they need. So you need to be able to make sure that you can distribute this widely across the industry. So those are some of the things that we looked at and said, you know, we really need to think about how to take some of those ideas forward from what we saw with the federal crop insurance program. And Zurich, one of the things that we put forward, as I mentioned earlier, we brought concepts into the conversation One of the concepts that we brought forward is, what does that risk-sharing mechanism look like between the federal government and the private sector? The federal crop insurance program has it built off of this reinsurance arrangement where it provides choice for the carrier. How much risk does the insurance company want to take? Because one of the things that we think is really important is 
not all insurance companies are the same, right? They operate in different geographies. They have different appetite. They go after uh, different segments of the market. They're different sizes, different financial strength. And so a one-size-fits-all solution for the insurance companies probably isn't the right solution. So choice for the insurance company about how much risk they're willing to take, we thought was a really important concept. And the federal crop insurance program had some really nice ideas that we could draw from. It's a pretty uh, complex topic. You mentioned earlier about how it, the pandemic is such a wide-reaching problem that needs to be chunked up into smaller problems. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Kind of sure. Explain where insurance comes in. Yeah. If you think about our experience with COVID, and again, it's worth repeating that the next pandemic may look nothing like this one. But if you think about our experience with COVID, we went through these phases. Right? And that first phase was the pause phase. We had to all pause, kind of figure out what we were dealing with and figure out how we were going to move forward. And then we had to start adapting and we had to start doing some things differently. And then we had to kind of enter this phase, hopefully the phase that we're in now, which is a bit of an exit phase, right? So how do we get sort of to whatever the new normal is in a post-pandemic? And it's probably a little premature to say we're there yet, but I think we're trying and all hoping that we're getting to that phase. So if I think about it across those really three big buckets, there's an element of resilience and preparedness that helps support companies throughout all of those phases. And there's a, a place for the insurance industry to really help customers think about how to navigate all three of those pieces. But then from a financial protection standpoint, again, it's really that pause piece up front because there has to come a point in time where, and we saw it with COVID, right? That after you get through that pause phase, there's some decisions that need to be made. Businesses need to decide, are there certain expenses that they can scale? Are there certain parts of their operations that they can modify? Is there something that they can do differently to really make it through and, and thrive through you know, this period of time? So at some point, the responsibility certainly passes from that financial protection, that, that safety net that you have, to some responsibility then for the business to figure out how they're gonna make their way through. And so the insurance piece is really important in that early, that early phase. Give everyone the breathing room they need to implement the plans that they hopefully have um, put in place ahead of time so that if I'm a restaurant, I, I can start to think about you know, transitioning to that middle period of time where I have to really adapt. And then that may require you know, eliminating certain expenses that are variable expenses, finding new sources of revenue, finding new ways of, of kind of making it through this period of time. But the insurance piece from a financial protection standpoint would really be in that, that initial phase of pause. And then the resiliency piece is something that the insurance industry could certainly help customers with throughout those three phases uh, of a pandemic. It's interesting. You talked about how businesses had to adapt. Some friends of mine own a brewery in town here. And when this hit, they no longer had customers coming to their brewery. They were not selling kegs to local bars because the bars were not open. And they had all this beer. Oh, like, what do they do? And they ended up, fortunately, they had a canning operation. And then they started delivering. They started doing home deliveries. They had to change their whole business model on a dime. Fascinating. And if I could just to that, when I talk about resilience and then I talk about the role that insurance industry can help customers navigating through these periods of time. Yeah. One of the things that businesses had to figure out is they were getting into operations that they weren't familiar with. And that's a place where the insurance industry, whether it's your agent or broker or your insurance carrier, is there to help that customer um, or that business navigate through that change. 
So, you know, the brewery in town that started doing delivery, that's a new exposure for them. That's new things that can go um, unfortunately wrong with, with uh, their operations. And that's where, that's where the insurance industry can, again, lend that consultative voice to help them overcome some of those new challenges. And uh, I'll share another example. You know, a lot of breweries, and you started down the brewery path here, distilleries moved into hand sanitizer, right? There was a period of time where you couldn't find a bottle of hand sanitizer. It's hard to remember, you know, back a year and a half ago, but there was a period of time where none of us could find some hand sanitizer or rubbing alcohol at the grocery store. So anybody and everybody who could get into um, helping to fill that void and create supply for hand sanitizer was getting into that. Well, that's alcohol, that's flammable, right? And so we were seeing customers who weren't traditionally used to either handling or storing flammable materials now finding themselves taking office space. You know, just to give an example, we had a, an example of someone using office space and a tenant was storing hand sanitizer in their office space and using it as a distribution facility. Well, that, that's a very different fire risk for that office exposure yeah. than that office was designed for. So again, that's where we were able to work with customers to help them understand as as people are trying different things and getting exposed to different things, there's different risks. And this is where the insurance industry can really help people navigate through some of those risks. That, that actually explains the oak barrel age to hand sanitizer. We that <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So what's next? Do you see Congress getting involved? Is there any kind of a groundswell to find some workable solution? There is. I think, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, you know, it really takes everybody coming together to come up with uh, a workable solution uh, to go forward. And so there's been pockets in different areas that have, that have really leaned in to try to figure out how to come up with a solution, whether it be trade associations from the insurance side, um, policyholder coalitions representing different industries, different groups of customers or businesses that have been affected. And then legislatively, absolutely, interest from both both sides of Congress trying to come up with ideas, trying to figure out what everyone's role should be going forward in a solution that is workable. And that's the important thing, right, is to come up with something that's actually going to have meaningful impact next time around. So there is interest. Now, there's a lot going on in Washington, so I think they've got their hands full with a lot of other things. But I think this is going to remain on the forefront and things that they definitely want to tackle. You know, we've stayed actively engaged across all of those cohorts, whether it be our trade associations or uh, policyholder and customer groups or legislatively, because again, we want to be part of the conversation and help bring some ideas forward and, and try to carve out a spot for the insurance industry to help. Great. Well, well, Pete, I want to thank you for your insights today. You're not quite finished. However, we like to finish these podcasts with what we call a lightning round of personal questions. So if you're ready. Um, okay. Oh, okay. Let's so, try it. I, so since we've been talking about the pandemic, I want to know how have you and your family been coping with the shutdowns caused by the pandemic? You no, know, we're fortunate. We've, uh, I think, gotten through fairly unscathed. I work in an industry that was able to adapt, I mentioned earlier, uh, adaptation. You know, I work in an industry, financial services industry, working for an insurance company that was able to adapt fairly well, able to go to remote work fairly easily. Me personally, I've never personally been a fan of remote work, but just like businesses had to be very adaptive, so did we. And uh, we actually do adapt pretty well as people. It's actually gotten to the point where it's hard for me to envision what uh, working in an office would be like. Again, I've gotten very used to this work from home arrangement. So whether it's kids in school or not in school, 
or just getting by with a work from home arrangement. We figured it out. We were adaptive and we were very fortunate. So what do you miss most about your pre pandemic life? I've got a pretty short memory, so I don't really remember too much about pre pandemic life, tell you the truth. Again, I'd say a lot of things have gotten you know, normal is not exactly the right word, but uh, this past summer has felt a bit normal. You know, the part of the country that I live in did fairly well I think, through the summer months. So it had some elements of normalcy to it. So I wouldn't really say there's anything that I miss, more just trying to figure out what the future is going to look like. Yeah. You mentioned uh, getting used to working from home. How has the pandemic changed your life forever, for better or worse. Boy, I tell you, the first time I did curbside pickup and didn't have to go into a store, I mentioned earlier, I'm not a huge fan of shopping. So the first time I was able to just pull up and have somebody pass it to me through the window, I'm like, this is here to stay. Um, (laughs) I don't want to lose this. I don't miss not having to go into a store. So I think there's parts of commerce that have changed forever. You know, as a result of this, I think all of our perspectives have changed as a result of this. You see a lot of people changing what they considered their priorities as a result. And I think we're seeing that shape the workplace. You know, you certainly see it in the jobs numbers. And so I think things like that are going to have a lasting effect. I like uh, wearing a mask when I go grocery shopping so I can pretend that I'm on a top secret mission. And if I see people I don't want to talk to, I can pretend I didn't see them. Let me answer the previous question that I didn't uh, uh, really think of an answer. I do miss seeing smiles. Um, It is very difficult to make a personal connection, whether you're just walking through the aisle of a store or boarding a plane. When you you get the eye contact, but you don't get to see the smile, it's really difficult. I'm surprised how many people recognize me when I have a mask on. There must be everything else about me. You need to start wearing sunglasses and hats too. So I've started going to concerts again. Once the restrictions were lifted, they were lifted this summer. Bands started touring. I started buying tickets and then they started requiring proof of vaccination and masks. What are you looking forward to the most once the pandemic is officially over? So I think for me, um, this is maybe a little bit of a deeper answer than you were thinking uh, of, but I'm really concerned about how this has affected kids. So I'd really like to see kids get back to really feeling like kids again. I think we've done the best we can to try to help that. But I just want to make sure that this doesn't have a lasting impact on the kids. My youngest daughter graduated high school in 2020. So spent her last several months in here in the bedroom. And then her freshman year at Penn State was all vir- she was on campus, but it was all virtual. So we did not get a discount. And they and they need that experience as part of growing up. Right. So uh, I just want to make sure people aren't robbed of that for too long. They uh, are going to form a very resilient generation, I believe. Yes. So. Um, I, I want to finish up with a couple of non-pandemic questions we've been asking most of our guests. First one is, part of business is taking calculated risks. What's the biggest professional risk you took that worked out? So it's going to be a category of risk rather than an individual risk. And for me, it's always been decisions I've made around my career. I haven't grown up in a kind of vertical discipline where I just did the next you know, elevated set of responsibilities within one specific vertical. I've tried some different things and I got pretty used to early on getting uncomfortable and taking some chances. And the way I did that is a couple of things. Number one, sometimes it's just mentally getting over it. For me, that's the roller coaster effect. So I I tell people when I'm either mentoring folks or, or talking to people early in their career, you know, anybody who's ridden a roller coaster, they stand you in line and they have all the people who are coming off the roller coaster going past you while you're waiting in line, right? And you're yeah. sitting in that line, staring at that roller coaster, you know, shaking in your boots, scared to death. And then you see all these people coming off the roller coaster that number one survived, 
And number two, I have these giant smiles on their face and just looked like they had the, the time of their life. So for me, I always look at it as I'm standing in this line. I'm scared to death, but I know somebody's gone and done it before me. And it worked out for them. And so I can take that same risk. So um, I've always approached that with my career is to say there's got to be something that I'm that I'm you know scared of trying that I have to get past. Somebody else has been in my shoes. Somebody else has been scared to do it as well. And you really just have to take that chance. And it, it can be so rewarding. Um, so that's that's really a part of it. And you do that by finding something, that point of confidence. You know, what is that thing that you're really good at or that you're really strong at? that you can bring to that foreign experience, right? You're going to do something totally different, but there's something that you're bringing to it. So for me, that's always been uh, how I've approached it is find that thing that I think that I can bring to this really scary situation, know that I'm going to get through it, give it a shot. More than likely, I'm going to get off the ride. That's an interesting analogy with the roller coaster. I will say that I don't know what it says about me, but I do not ride roller coasters. Not, not under penalty of death will I step yeah. on a roller coaster. It's not fear. I know it's safe. I just, it's not a thrill I enjoy, so I don't do yeah. it. Last question. What is the most important skill a leader should develop? So I don't know if this is the most important skill, but I think it's something that I try to do. And it actually ties into my last answer, which is helping people that I work with find that thing that can give them their confidence. Like what is that thing that they are really good at that they can bring into that situation and that they can use to leverage and, and use as a tool to get new and, and different experience. So I know there's a lot of energy that gets spent on what are the things that you can improve and what are the, you know, where are the things that you don't do as well as you'd like to do and what can you do to do those better? I tend to try to focus on the other side of it to say, what are those things that you already do really well and how can you leverage and exploit that even more in a productive way? So I try to help people find that thing um, and then they can work with somebody else on some of their improvement areas. Interesting. Well, Pete, that's it. I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this Future of Risk podcast. I'm David Hilgen. Thank you very much.